tonight's your turn to think for a moment. I'm going to have Antoine actually type in some of these things that you come up with. All right? So if I were asking you, which I am right now, if I were asking you, why do you believe in the resurrection? Last week we spent all this time debunking the Talpiot tomb theory, but let's ignore that. That's, if that's rubbish, let's move on. A week is enough time to spend on that. Let's talk about the real resurrection. Why do you believe in the resurrection? What evidence would you either be looking for or already have in your possession that convinces you that, yeah, this is probably a true thing? How about a secular account of the Romans saying that the, the stone was cracked and the body's gone? Okay, so is that something that you know of or that you'd be looking for? That's what I'd be looking for. Okay, so you'd be looking for something from the Romans saying the body's not there. Okay, all right. Okay, yeah, Lena? So too many witnesses to the resurrection or? Too many witnesses to seeing him alive. Okay, anything else? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I first have to say that I think that this is uh, probably one of the hardest things to have faith in is their resurrection. I mean, even Thomas doubted and how Jesus says, like, you know, greater are those who believe and don't see. If you were a skeptic, what would you want to see? If I was a skeptic, what would yeah. I want to see? Um, or if you were speaking to a skeptic, what would you offer him? In, in today's, today. Yeah, because the, the reason I put it in today's terms is one of the things we have to think about is we're today. We don't have the choice of going back, and we're dealing with people and talking to people who are challenging us or that we're trying to challenge who are alive today. So how do we go well, back in you, time? I'll tell you what, is that I'll, I'd probably want to see, uh, if he didn't resurrect, I'd probably want to see some evidence that he was still here. You know? If I was a skeptic, I think I would discount um, the, uh, the disciples' testimony as being objective. Yeah, because they're already way up in the crowd. So you'd say you can't rely on the disciples. Anyone else? I, I think the compound um, information for, for everything else that happened before is, is good evidence for the resurrection because it really solidified the divinity of Christ and all the things like miracles and everything that happened before and all the eyewitness accounts and all that. Like that adds up to a huge you know, heap of evidence that someone is capable of doing something amazing it was just, you know, Bob the Sheeper who one day decided to raise himself from the dead. You don't have that same sort of thing of someone who steadily did, you know, crazier and crazier amazing things to the point where, like, okay, now for my final trick. So that, you know. Yeah, I like that very much. It, what you're saying is that, if I can reinterpret a little bit of what you're saying, um, Jesus not only performed miracles, but he actually raised people from the dead on a number of occasions before he himself was raised from the dead. And I believe we have other examples in Acts where people were raised from the dead after that. So, and it's all through the same claimed power, which is the power of God, the Holy Spirit, however you want to use that. Um, and so it wasn't like a one-time event, okay? Uh, it wasn't like a, a stranger who just claimed he did it out of nowhere. There was like a whole buildup where people had the chance to I guess, for lack of a better word, challenge the power that was causing this. Um, I mean, he raised Lazarus in front of a, a lot of people, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that's a that's an interesting that's proof. I like that proof. Anything else before we go on to some others? 
All right, well, put them up on the screen. That's what you guys have. Let's go through some others that I'm gonna read to you. I like that Jamie is looking for some objective evidence, by the way, outside of it. So let's, let's take a look at what some people are saying about this. Okay, here's some historical quotations, first of all, that I've pulled in. I'm drawing heavily on materials that have been compiled by Josh McDowell and his evidence that demands a verdict, Lee Strobel and his case for Christ. Um, a lot of people have these books, not many people read them. <laughs> Thought we'd use them for a change, you know, instead of just having them on the shelf in the library. Um, I've done some interpretation out of them, but here's some... Here's just some quotations and some things, and I've added my own comments. Look at this one. One of the things that Jamie was hitting on in a second is, I'd like to see something outside of the biblical accounts. Now, I think the biblical accounts have great weight. We'll talk about why in a moment. But let's take somebody outside. A lot of people cite to Josephus. Nobody actually knows what he wrote or who he is. They just go, well, didn't this guy named Josephus say something? Here's actually what he said. This is the quote from his writings in Antiquities, is the, is the writing that he was doing. He's a historian. He's living towards the end of the first century when he's writing this. And the thing that makes Josephus so credible is not just that he was a historian. It's not just that he was writing to... Uh, to a non-Christian audience, and he himself is not a Christian, the, things that, the thing that makes Josephus a little bit credible is he's writing to the Romans. He's trying to document something to the Romans. He's, he's trying to write to a Roman audience, and what makes that credible is that Romans have no, no dog in this fight, one way or another. And it's a little bit weird to be writing to them about such a strange event. Here's what he says. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many Jews and also many of the Greeks. This man was the Christ. Now, we don't have any evidence that he was a Christian, but he makes this pronouncement. He's summarizing what he believes is floating around about Jesus. And to call him the Christ is pretty extreme, I think. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross upon his impeachment by the principal man among us, those who had loved him from the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive on the third day. The divine prophets haven't spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him. And even now, the race of Christians, so named for him, has not died out. It's a great testimony written from somebody who, like I said, doesn't have a dog in the fight. He's outside of this thing. Making statements about the resurrection as if they were historical fact claiming that he was the Christ. Now, in fairness, our notion of history today may be a little bit different than the notion in the first century where you were reporting what was being said and done, maybe not necessarily directly investigating and reserving judgment until you could absolutely prove it. But this is kind of his version of the history surrounding Jesus. Yeah. Is it like how it says, like, if you believe that he raised from the dead... Like, you won't, you'll be saved? Like, is he just proclaiming that right now? Well, that's the point that I'm trying to make, is I'm not so sure that we can say with a 21st century view of what history is and, and impose that on a 1st century. It's possible that 1st century historians were reporting what was being said as opposed to what really happened. You know what I mean? Today, a historian would say, well, you can't make assumptions like that. You have to investigate them and find out if they're true. What if their disciples are lying? He's reporting what is being said. But that's one interpretation, one criticism of why this is not a proclamation of truth. But still, you have a person who's writing to a Roman audience from a Jewish standpoint, and his, his job is to be a historian, and he's saying 
some things. So clearly we have, even if he's just a reporter, it means that he's running around and there's reports circulating everywhere that this is going on. And then he's using them. Okay? I cite the Bishop of Antioch, Ignatius. Very early on, look at the date. It's like 50 to 115 is when he was living. So he's within, let's say, 100 years, less than 100 years of the time of Christ. He went to his death, eaten by wild animals, proclaiming this. He rose again in three days. He really died, was buried, and rose from the dead. So early, early stuff telling us that the resurrection is there. Here's some other historical evidence outside, I think, of, that we can look at. We have evidence, before you even get to the testimony of the gospel writers, we have an instance of Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body. Why is this significant? In the Roman days, when you crucified somebody, you left them on the cross. You didn't take them down. You left them on the cross to be eaten by wild birds. That's how they basically ended their existence. They were supposed to just hang there. We have evidence of, in all four Gospels, confirmed that Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body. A lot of times people thought, well, that just seems like a made-up account. Why would Pilate give the body away when the custom was to leave the body hanging to show the shame and let them be eaten away by wild birds? But we find in Josephus and other places that he himself, by the way, there's evidence that Josephus himself made requests for certain bodies in this one instance, and there's other people that did. It's been recorded. So the fact that all four Gospels go out of their way, not just to say that he was buried in a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, but that Joseph had to go and ask Pilate for the bodies is completely consistent with the way this was done. There's discussion about the existence of the tomb all right, in the Gospels. They talk specifically about the stone and its weight. We're going to go into that in a moment. There's a guard placed at the tomb. All of these things could have pre prevented a burial and a resurrection. We have the seal of the Roman authorities on the tomb, and we have eyewitness accounts according to the Gospels that the grave clothes were left behind. These are details that are very carefully interwoven into the Gospel story. Why is it significant? Why do we even believe the Gospel stories? Look at the detail that they go into and they try to set up something like this, okay? They're actually, at this point, not talking about supernatural events. They're reporting historical facts that could have been easily disputed in a church. For example, if there really wasn't a stone over the tomb, don't you think that the people who were disputing the resurrection, like namely the Jewish authorities, there would have been some sort of effort to dispute that there was a stone, that there was a tomb? If it's true that there was no guard or no guards placed at the tomb, don't you think that there wouldn't have... Well, we have a story circulating. The gospel writers record it that says the guards fell asleep. They don't dispute that there were guards there. They just say the guards fell asleep. We don't have any historical writings anywhere that says there were no guards. There was no tomb. There was no stone. We have the seal of the Roman authorities on the tomb. The way the seal has been done, just so you get an idea, when they wanted to seal something that was a doorway or a tomb, they would take a rope and string it across whatever they were trying to seal and then put like basically a clay signet or something like a seal type on either side so that if that thing was open anyway, the seal would be broken and you'd know that it had been broken. They were doing it for authenticity, but they were also doing it because basically if you broke the Roman seal, you were subject to death for breaking the seal. The guard was not there to protect the tomb. The guard was there to protect the seal. They were sworn to protect the state and the authority of that seal. We have all these details placed out. Yes, it's true. We could say, well, 
gospel writers, they were kind of biased. They had a they had an agenda. They had to tell a good story. We're going to talk about a little bit of the earlier writings, go back even before the gospels. But we don't have anybody contradicting any of this. They've laid it out in exceptional detail. Is it, I mean, that, that's the thing that comes to my mind. The Jews and specifically the yeah, and we're going to talk more about the lack of refutation. Um, the most significant one, and I'll start with it first, is it's the one at the bottom of the screen. There's no evidence that the resurrection was debated or disputed by the opponents of Christianity, especially since everyone knew where the tomb would have been. So this is in contrast to the Talpiot tomb theory that we studied last week. In reality, everyone knew exactly where the tomb was. If there was a body in that tomb, you would immediately be able to discredit Christianity because the resurrection is not a small doctrine in Christianity. It's the bedrock of the entire thing. If it's not, if it's not the center, for example, of Christ theology, which it is, but even if you're looking at it from a historical standpoint, forget theology, the early church is using the resurrection as the reason for people to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Even from the first speech that Peter gives in Acts, he's talking about the resurrected Christ. If you were going to dispute Christianity and show it to be false, you would show that Christ had not been resurrected. That's all you'd need. You, would need to, you wouldn't need to debate whether he was a good man or a good teacher or a miracle worker. Here in this case, you have somebody who's base, is saying, I am the Christ, I am God, and I'm resurrected. And his disciples are proclaiming that truth. If you want to just cut it down, you'd say... Oh, yeah? Well, he's right here in the tomb. He hasn't been resurrected. We know where he is. We saw him hanging on the cross and eaten by birds, or we, we know where his tomb is. Let's look at some others. I mean, all four Gospels not only attest to the resurrection account, but notice that they go into detail. It's almost like you're setting up, you know that this is going to be an issue for people. You're talking about the accounts of the discovery, the order of the witnesses, the names, and the reactions of each person's what they find at the tombs. They actually describe how John looks into the tomb and sees the grave clothes and says, Peter, look, the, the, the shrouds are there. And then Peter runs in and takes a look at them. All these things are described in detail. And they're repeated in different gospels, okay? They talk about the absence of the body. They even address other theories. They even talk about there was at this time discussion that they might steal the body. I mean, they are the ones that bring it up. That's how we know this discussion was taking place. Look at this. The resurrection is actually attested to earlier than the Gospels. Okay? Let's say the Gospel of Mark is written 20 years maybe after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a ballpark figure. In 1 Corinthians 3 to 7, I'm sorry, let me say that again. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 7, I left the, the, the 15 out. Paul is actually reciting a hymn that goes back, they believe, to within three or four years of Christ's resurrection. And it walks through the order of the people who saw the resurrection and how we know it's true. So within just a couple of years, we already have evidence circulating in the Christian community that the resurrection is real. If people wanted to kill it, they would have disputed it early on. They wouldn't let it go. They wouldn't wait. So it seems like there's all this early evidence in the accounts, both the Gospels, pre-Gospel, Paul's writings, which predate the Gospels, you remember when we looked at the Talpiot tomb, we used 1 Corinthians 15 as the basis for all the issue of resurrection. That's Paul's entire defense of resurrection, the resurrection of the body. It's all there. All right, so you probably could be still skeptical and say, we're still seeing a lot of biblical evidence. 
Here's some eyewitness accounts. In Acts 1-3, Luke is writing, and he says these words, After his suffering, he showed himself, showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You see the Greek word there, tekmerion, when it's the word for convincing? What kind of proofs? Convincing proofs. The Greek word actually implies a testable, demonstrable proof. Ryan brought up earlier that Thomas wanted to see and touch, and Jesus said, blessed are those who believe, but don't get to see me and touch me, right? But Jesus apparently didn't, wasn't too harsh on Thomas because there were a lot of other people that wanted to have this kind of physical, demonstrable proof, and he gave it to them. Other translations actually use the word infallible proof. Something that isn't just like, eh, maybe, but you can actually touch it, feel it. It's convincing because you can test it, because it's demonstrable, because it, it wouldn't fail any tests. Okay? Look at these people. Mary Magdalene, the women at the tomb, Peter on Resurrection Sunday, later that day, the Emmaus Road disciples, you know, they, were, they get to see him. He appears to the apostles without Thomas. He later appeals, he appears to the, the apostles with Thomas. The seven, when they're fishing at the Sea of Galilee, he later appears to them. He appears to 500 believers at one time, Paul tells us. And remember, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians. You see, I've kind of bolded the places that come from 1 Corinthians. They're all from 1 Corinthians 15, because he's giving us that recitation that likely comes from that early hymn and creed, but also in his defense of the resurrection, Paul tells us that you guys all know. And when you go, we all know, where's that in the Gospels? I don't see that anywhere in the Gospels. But it says, as you guys all know, he appeared to 500 people all at the same time. John, let me ask you a question. In today's society, we want to see written documentation. But back then, stories and dialogue were handed down. Were they as good as, was the spoken word as good as the written proof back in the first century? Yeah, the oral tradition was much stronger than it is today. So these things were passed down for many generations orally. And not just like something you would later write down, but you would actually pass down almost verbatim orally. So we can have great confidence in the writing because for a period like if 1 Corinthians is written, I'm just going to guess, let's say if it's written before Mark, let's say it's written within 10 to 15 years of Christ's death okay, and resurrection. If that's the case, um, or even up to 20 years, that is such a short period of time for people who are comfortable with the oral tradition that you could almost be certain that not only were the creeds and the hymns written down exactly right, but that you know, those kinds of things that, that Paul is receiving and writing about in his letter are probably been repeated over and over without change. And that's an important fact. Even Jesus' sayings in the Gospels, as we'll later look at, were probably repeated and told without any alterations. People are writing them down. Of course, we also have the confidence that the Holy Spirit was guiding these people as they wrote. But if you're going to look at it from a purely historical standpoint and throw out anything that's Holy Spirit, inspiration, and just look at could these people who were eyewitnesses or people who were writing about eyewitness accounts get them right? The answer is absolutely. We'd have high confidence in that. And most scholars don't dispute that what they were writing is what was being circulated. They're saying there must be an alternate theory if they're going to dispute it. Because this is too many people. 
I mean, Lena had mentioned that there were a lot of people that he appeared to. I mean, there's 500 people that he appeared to near Galilee at one time, Paul tells us. Okay? Again, it's not in the Gospels. We don't have that account in the post-resurrection accounts, but Paul tells us that it happened. Um, he appears to James, which is important. We'll talk about it in a second. He appears to the Eleven. He appears at the Ascension. He appears to Paul, which is also significant. To Stephen. To Paul again at the temple. And then to John on Patmos when he's writing the book of Revelation. He has all these eyewitness appearances afterwards. I think the best one to me, I just love the fact that he appeared to 500 people and left that behind for people to know about. All right, let's talk about the credibility of the witnesses for a moment. Why do we believe any of these people? If I asked you why you would believe these people, what, what would you, could you give me an answer real fast? Anyone have one about the credibility of the witnesses that would make them more credible? Yeah, each of these people that I've put up here, these are just some of the people I've picked, had a strange reason for becoming, for being witnesses. Let's go through some of them. The first one I put up is the women. Okay, the women are the first people to go to the tomb. This is an interesting fact that I found in my research that a lot of people think that, well, the women should be biased. You know, they're close to Jesus. Of course, they're going to say something like, he's not there, his prophecy's been fulfilled. Well, let's remember that a lot of the early disciples and apostles didn't understand quite that Jesus was going to be resurrected. One of the big mysteries that we have is he's following him around. They see him raise other people. He keeps telling them about how he's going to rise from the dead and be all these things, and they just don't get it. They're still surprised when it actually happens. They're still stressed out when he dies, remember. Peter is denying him. The, the disciples are scattering. They're locked up inside somewhere. So they don't understand that he's going to be resurrected. It's kind of a little bit of a surprise to them. It's a surprise to the women. But why is it important that the women are the first to see him? Well, some people have said that's because Jesus was a great feminist. It might be true. Because in the first century, women's testimony were totally disregarded. In fact, a woman couldn't testify in court because she was believed to be crazy and a liar. And the gospel writers record that the women saw him first. So let me, let me say it this way so it'll make sense. If you were trying to make up a resurrection story in the first century, you would not put in the story that the women were his first witnesses. Because women are unreliable as a matter of law in the first century. But it's consistent with, in, while he was living, he went to the woman at the well, and, and his disciples don't believe to and then also the woman that touched his garment, a bunch of people were touching him, and he broke those norms, those cushions. And he let women travel with him, which is also strange, that he would allow women, we know that Mary Magdalene was one of the women that traveled with him. Uh, maybe even his mother traveled around with him, which was also a little bit strange to have at the time. Lena? They have to, by Jewish custom, embalm the body, which they couldn't do before the, the Sabbath had started on the Friday when he was crucified. Scholars debate whether they thought they were going to roll away the tomb themselves, which they didn't think, but maybe they knew that they could ask the guards to do it. But they were just going as a matter of habit. Some people think that they probably could have gone and they were going to have to turn around because the guards wouldn't let them do it. Nobody knows why they went anyway. There's also the possibility that they didn't even know the guards were there, that they were just going hoping that they could get in somehow and embalm the body like they're supposed to. But either way, the historical point, if we step out of a gospel perspective, is if you're trying to make up a resurrection story, you would have the disciples discovering him, not the women, because the women would right off the bat be unreliable. 
The fact that we have all four gospel stories basically having the women discover him show that there must be agreement on a strange point. It's counterintuitive, but maybe the only reason it's counterintuitive is there's some credibility and weight to it. Look at James. What was James's relationship with Jesus before Jesus died and was resurrected? Anyone know? Stepbrother? Yeah, people debate whether he was a real brother of Jesus. I mean, a real brother meaning that from Mary and Joseph. Roman Catholic Church doesn't like to believe that he had any brothers, that he was a cousin or a stepbrother or, you know. Okay, whatever he was, he was related to Jesus in some way. What was his attitude towards Jesus? Was he a disciple? James didn't like his brother at all. In fact, he thought that he, was, he probably was shaming his family and causing them ridicule. He didn't believe any of his claims about his ministry or anything. But after the resurrection, when the Bible reports that he appeared to James, his brother, who does James become? He becomes the head of the church. James is eventually, well, we talked about him last week. Remember, they were supposedly found as ossuary. James was stoned to death for Christ, the brother that he didn't really care much for, that he thought really didn't believe in his ministry, that he thought should just be quiet and stop shaming the family. After he sees him, he becomes the head of the church and risks death. That's a transformation that you have to explain by he must have seen something. It gives him credibility as a witness to go against completely what he believed in. Thomas. We talked about Thomas briefly already. There's another guy who's like, I don't believe it. You know, we have him recorded as saying, I won't believe it until I see it. Okay, they could have made up the story about Thomas, but it's recorded. What about Paul? Well, let's go back to Peter. Sorry, I don't want to skip Peter. Peter's a great example to me because Peter, he runs away. He denies him. You know, he says, I don't even know the guy. And then within a few weeks at Pentecost, he's standing up in front of just a huge throng of people proclaiming the resurrection. This is Peter who's so scared that he won't admit that he even knows the guy. By the way, if you read Peter's speech in Acts, it's all based on Christ arising Okay, So he goes through a, a massive transformation. How do you explain that? I mean, just objectively, you just, if you, this is historical evidence. We've got a guy who used to be one of his believers who denies the guy and then stands up and becomes the chief spokesperson on resurrection at Pentecost. And many come to believe that day because of him. But just look at this guy who becomes suddenly so bold when before he couldn't even admit he'd followed the guy. Radical transformation. Paul, another radical transformation. What's Paul's job early on? He's killing Christians. All right? He's trained in the Jewish law. He's trying to kill Christians. He's radically transformed. What does he do? Turns a new leaf and becomes the, basically the chief proponent for Christianity. He's the chief theologian in the early days. His writings, his epistles are what we base most of our theology on. The interesting thing about Paul is the visions of Christ are not, I think, the most convincing thing. Because somebody could say he saw a ghost or he hallucinated. You know, he didn't actually see the physical person and touch him like Thomas did. We have to look at Paul and go, look at the way his life switches around, though, because of this event. This is not just a guy who, like, well, it was a guy who was just hanging out and drinking and doing bad stuff and suddenly became a Christian. This is a guy whose job was to kill Christians. He believed that they were such a threat to his Judaism and he was so well taught in it and loved it so much that he had no problem killing. In fact, we know that he's standing when they're killing Stephen, kind of standing in the background, nodding his head approvingly. We need to kill these people. And then he becomes 
the chief thinker and writer for the Christians and eventually dies for it. Spends a lot of his time in prison. And you have to ask him why, because he believed it was real. And he's living very close to the time. I mean, he's, he's, he's trying to, to suppress the early church, and then it basically explodes. People attribute it to Paul. If you're going to attribute to any human character, who carried the, who carried the church? It was really Paul's writings and Paul. Early Christians, really easy. How many early Christians went to their deaths just for their beliefs? We've already mentioned that. So you can just kind of lump them together. The church in general, one of the greatest testimonies in the world is how does a group following Jesus in a corner of the Roman Empire, this small group, this small breakout of this Jewish, it's a Jewish sect, basically, that becomes this amazing world religion. How's that happen? If people don't believe in this, it wouldn't work. If people had evidence that the resurrection wasn't, wasn't right, it wouldn't work. There were so many ways to kill it. Paul himself was trying to physically kill Christians. If there was a way to kill their religion by just disproving the resurrection early on, don't you think they would have done it? So historically, from the outside, if you see this small sect started by a, a guy in Galilee, an, an unknown part of, a, of, of Judaism, which is even a bigger unknown part of the Roman Empire, all this stuff, it's just, it's kind of, it's really improbable. It's really improbable. Say it in a different way, you know, he's born in a nowhere town, in a nowhere part of the Jewish lands, which is really in a nowhere part of the Roman Empire, and this becomes a major world religion. Somebody and something is behind it. If you're not going to believe in the resurrection, then you've got a couple choices. So sometimes you learn about something by looking at the alternate theories. So we've already kind of thrown out what we believe circumstantially happened and some of the documentary evidence and some of the other evidence of changed lives and people. But let's just say you don't believe it. You go, you know what? I don't believe the, the historian Josephus. I don't believe the early gospel accounts. I don't believe all the detail. I don't believe these changed lives. It was just, there's got to be another explanation. So here they are. Here's the other explanations that you'd pretty much adopt. In 2,000 years, these are pretty much the four explanations that people have come up with. So I, not like I just made up four. These are the four that people have tried. So you'd think if there was a lot of other reasons in 2,000 years, a better one would have been we found his body. I guess maybe we should add the fifth, the Talpiot tomb theory. We found his body. Okay? Maybe that was why it's so dangerous to Christianity if it were true. Here's the theories. Number one, Jesus did not die on the cross. This has been known as the swoon theory. In other words, he fainted. He fainted on the cross. Well, the good thing about this theory is it at least recognizes that the birds didn't eat him. <laughs> which, believe it or not, is one theory that's, that one person puts forward as part of the Jesus Seminar. He believes that the birds ate him. That's why we can't find his body. Okay? Most historians completely dismiss that one, even if they're going to believe one of these four. There's just so much evidence for the fact that he was buried in a tomb and all these references to Joseph of Arimathea asking Pilate for the body and the Jews putting him in a tomb and a guard and a seal that nobody really disputes that he was actually in a tomb somewhere. So, John, what's, what's the that one? This one is that he awoke sometime in the tomb because he hadn't really died. Right. Okay. So how do you dispute this one? Well, really interestingly, medical doctors can determine just by the gospel accounts of Jesus on the cross whether he was really dead or not. The gospel writers were so detailed in their descriptions that we know for a fact that even to the point when they pierce his side and they describe the type of fluid that comes out 
that there was some blood and something that appeared to be water. Medical doctors have written, and I can give you the passage if you want, an entire description of how a person dies by crucifixion, how you know if they're dead, how they basically die of asphyxia, and how, what condition is going on inside of their body, and how the fluids are building up inside of their body, surrounding their heart, to the point that if you pierce them, what would come out of their body? The gospel writers actually gave us that beautiful clue of recording it when they saw it, the eyewitness account, to the point where medical doctors today can say, you know what, that fact confirms he was dead on the cross. Now, we don't have many examples of people being crucified and living. Crucifixion was such a cruel death that you pretty much, you were dead one way or another. Remember, we also even have the Roman soldiers walking around trying to figure out if they should break the person's legs or not. If the person was still alive, the way they'd be alive is they'd use their legs to keep pushing themselves up so they could breathe because you're basically dying of suffocation. They didn't need to break his legs. He was already dead. They pretty much figured it out. They pierced his side. They figured out whatever they had to figure out. And they just said, the guy's dead. He's done. All right? I mean, even if he didn't die on the cross, which is impossible that he didn't die on the cross, but just from his wounds. Remember, the guy had been whipped all day long. So we can get that clip from the Passion of the Christ, watch that whole thing. It's pretty brutal that he, before he even got to the cross, was nearly dead. So that theory, not so much. You can believe it, but that's probably not going to get you very far. Uh, you think that Satan tried to kill Jesus before he was actually on the cross to make him not? I don't know if it would have made a difference. I guess Jesus had to die one way or another. Did it matter if the Romans killed him? Or... You don't think so? I don't, I don't think, he, I, I don't think so. So it didn't matter if he died from the whip then? Yeah, I think if that was the way he ended up getting killed, I think in the end he's still dying for us. You know what I mean? I understand the cross is not the cross is sacred because Christ died on the If he would have died, right. the, whip, the whip would be We would have been wearing whips around our neck, you know, or whatever it is. You know, they were like, yeah, it could have been anything. Yeah, it could have been the gallows. I mean, whatever it was, it was the point that he died. In fact, dying on the cross, dying on the cross is a shameful death. It's only reserved for like the worst murderers and thieves. So Christ makes it into the symbol that becomes our symbol, not because the cross, the cross was ever good or holy. It was shameful, you know, that he would die. All right. Here's the other theory, probably the most likely one, the disciples stole the body. To believe this, you'd have to believe that they got past the guards. There was nothing supernatural about the guards falling asleep or anything like that. They actually snuck by the guards, rolled away the tomb, stole the body. Where, what would they do? Where would they take it? And even if they did that, the disciples, if they knew that they had the body, why would they die for these beliefs? I mean, they would just say, he was resurrected. Do you think they would proclaim on Pentecost? I mean, you know that if the disciples stole the body, Peter was in on the deal. There's no way Peter wasn't in on the deal. All right? The other thing that it ignores is all the eyewitness accounts. I mean, there were so many people that saw him. You would have to believe that somewhere in the neighborhood of 550 people were all collectively lying. Okay? You can't get 550 people to do anything without somebody... I mean, you know that you can't keep a secret among two or three or, you know, what is the old thing about, like, the only way that three people can keep a secret is if two of them are dead, <laughs> you know? How do you keep 550 people singing the same song and in line, especially when they face wild animals, torture, death, all these kind of things? Why? It doesn't make any sense. So historically, again, not just questioning their credibility, no sense. But I would say it's more likely than the other ones. 
that they just stole his body and all lied because they thought, hey, if we all die, we might start a world religion. The disciples went to the wrong tomb. I love this one. This one was advanced in the early 1900s by a guy named Lake. His idea was, this is how we know they went to the wrong tomb. When, they went, when the women went to the tomb, the angel said, you will not find him here. <laughs> because they were at the wrong tomb. So in their excitement, they just ran away. And the angel would have said, he's in that one over there. You know, but he didn't get to finish. Because they were so excited they ran away before he could tell them what tomb he was really in. Nobody buys his theory. Because the gospel accounts actually say, you will not find him here. He is risen. Okay? But I said I would look for all of the alternate theories. This was one of them. It's not likely, but I like it. It's kind of cute, you know? <laughs> At least he's relying on the... I mean, it's funny that you would rely on the fact that an angel said this, but you wouldn't rely on the fact that, like, Jesus rose from the dead, you know? Like, so he'd use an angel's words. All right, here's number four, which is, I think, the next one, I think, most likely after the disciples stole the body. The eyewitnesses were hallucinating. So now 550 or so eyewitnesses were all hallucinating when they saw Jesus. This was like a mass hallucination, the likes of which wasn't seen until Woodstock again, you know, <laughs> when they finally got that one right again where they could do it. It's not likely, but at least if you're going to look at it, you'd say, well, I mean, if I'm not going to believe in the resurrection, then I'm going to end up having to believe in one of these theories. You know, we never knew where his body is because we went to the wrong one. You guys were all hallucinating. The disciples tried to steal the body. He really didn't die. He was in there alive, and they finally rolled away the stone, and he just was like, woo like ran out, you know? In history, John, do you know of any where a culture was really hoping for something and it's like people fabricate? I mean, are you familiar? Like, I, if I was somebody objective going, hey, I, I've got a question whether or not, you know, he did die. Right. The disciples just to keep this going. You know, the best answer I can give you on that is I don't know of that instance, but I would look at it from this perspective in human nature. Two or three weeks ago when I first heard about the Talpiot tomb theory, I was contemplating what would happen if it was real. What would happen if we really found out that Jesus never rose from the dead? He was just a man. He was buried in the tomb. And that was the subject of that movie, The Body, and that was that Antonio Banderas movie I referenced the first time we talked about this. I know that in my heart, as much as I'm a passionate believer in Christ, if I was confronted with those facts, I'd be so bummed out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out and make up a new religion. I wouldn't want to talk about it anymore. I would be like, somebody just broke up with me, or worse. You know, my, like everything that I thought was real in life was suddenly not real, and I would be so disillusioned by it that I would act very much probably like the disciples did right after Jesus was died. Because even if they believed he was the Christ and the Messiah, and even if they didn't believe that he was going to overthrow Rome, just that he was God himself, that to see him hanging on a cross and to see him dead is probably the same way that it would be for me to walk into a tomb and, and say, yes, we know for sure that's his bones, and everything you all believed is totally false. I can understand why they scattered or why they were bummed out or why they didn't even believe that he was resurrected at first. And I would be the same way where I would just give up. I wouldn't go out and make up a new religion. I might shoot myself. I might jump off a cliff before I'd make up a new religion. Because there'd just be no reason to go on. Like, what's the purpose? Everything I believed was, you know, was wrong. Especially those who really believe it passionately, like disciples who walked with him and lived with him and saw him walk on water and do all these things. Like, this makes no sense. 
to then turn around and go to that extreme. And we have heard the argument in the church so often about how psychologically it's impossible for them to be testifying to his resurrection if it didn't really happen. We've heard it so often that we almost don't think about the argument. But think about it from that perspective of imagine if you found out that it wasn't true, would you make up a religion? Would you want to do anything other than maybe, I don't know, shoot up and do drugs and do everything you couldn't do when you were a Christian? Whatever it was that would almost harm yourself, you were so mad, you wouldn't turn around and risk your life for the sake of a lie. And I, that's why I think there's so much credibility in that argument. That's why I think that argument holds so much weight. Why the testimony of the disciples really is something we should believe in. James, Peter, especially Paul. Why these people just wouldn't do what they were doing because if it was, if you had evidence it wasn't true, you would just say, forget it, man. I wasted everything and I, I don't, I'm just going to go completely the other way. And that's something I think we have to almost peel back all the layers of Christianity for a moment and deal with the raw truth of it because we've heard it and become numb to that argument. And it's really a riveting argument because if I put myself in that place, that would happen. You see, Christianity is unique in this one way. It's the only religion I know that, I've, that I've, I can think of. In fact, I know it's the only religion that has the level of testable detail. Christianity dares to give us all of these details and say, I dare to prove that one of them is not true. Not just all of them or some of them, but we're saying the Bible is completely infallible. So prove one of these details not to be true, and you could sink the religion. That's audacious. And all the other religions, are t- they have sayings and poems and, and, and philosophies, but nothing like these types of detailed eyewitness accounts or the biblical history or archaeology or anthropology or anything that you could use. So this is what this last concluding point I want to make. This is uh, Dr. Picus Lapide. He's an Orthodox Jew. He's a theologian, and he specializes in New Testament studies. I want to make clear, he's not a Christian. He's an Orthodox Jew. This is his opinion. After studying everything surrounding the stories of the resurrection in the New Testament, He says, I accept the resurrection of Jesus not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. He's not alone. When we say that there's people who who aren't Christians, who are historians, and we kind of say like, well, who? Who other than Josephus? Here's one who's living in our time, who still maintains his Judaism, but studies the New Testament and can think of a hundred reasons I could could think of why he would want to say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but he says, you know what? If you look at the evidence, it's overwhelming. It's a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, there's reasons why he's not a Christian. I don't know exactly what his belief is, why Jesus could rise from the dead as a historical fact, and and he's not God or he's not the Messiah. I'm not really sure what those reasons are. But what I want to point out is that we're not alone in trying to take evidence and make something out of it because we want to believe it. People who are objective and outside of our faith who look at it just as objectively would say, yeah, there's just too much evidence for this one thing not to be true. The alternatives are just, you know, really crazy theories. It's easier to believe that a man could rise from the dead than to believe all those alternative theories. I just wanted to kind of lay those out tonight because... As that email said that we had discussed a few weeks ago from our friend Jim, he said, you know, we never really actually laid out a good case. And I thought, if we're going to debunk Simca Jacobovici's The Lost Tomb, we might as well spend some time talking about how you would actually defend it. 
There's so much more information in some of the books that if you guys want all the quotes and all the different things, I can give you some more. But really the point is, I think this is the best case. There's, there's more evidence for the resurrection, some people say, than any other event in the Gospels themselves. And I think that's because the Gospel writers were taking exceptional care to document what they thought was the bedrock of their faith. You know, If he walked on water or he didn't, it isn't as important as the fact that he died and rose from the dead. So they wanted to make sure that that part there was no disagreement about. Okay. Cool. Let's wrap it up. We're done with this series. We're going to do some other stuff. Ryan's going to lead us in a little bit more worship. Let's, uh, we'll let you take it away, man.